You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, this Thursday, the Red Hill Fuel Advisor Group is set to meet for the first time since the state delayed a decision on the Navy's permit to continue operating the underground facility at the massive uh, fuel tank farm. Uh, that farm fuel is the military-specific fleet and is said to be vital to security in the region. But threats to Oahu's drinking water and a recent Civil Beat story uh, about internal emails raise questions about whether the Navy withheld or misled the Health Department during a recent contested case hearing that has put pressure on the Navy to release information related to the spills at Red Hill and at Pearl Harbor. Here's the Sierra Club's Executive Director, Wayne Tanaka. We talked to him this morning about a public records complaint filed today uh, against the State Health Department. I'm actually very disappointed that we now have to litigate to get these public records. We originally requested public records back in July when Hawaii Public Radio first reported about the leak. The Health Department has failed to respond uh, to our request. They did not meet the deadlines. We think that the information that we are seeking is going to be critical to understand whether and how the Navy can monitor and respond to fuel leaks connected uh, with its Red Hill underground fuel storage facility, which the Department of Health has itself recognized as inherently dangerous. And so we think this is a matter of public concern um, for anyone, and including the club, but pretty much anyone who lives in Hawaii, who is served by this aquifer over which the Red Hill fuel tanks sit, including businesses, including our financial district, Waikiki, pretty much everyone from Halawa to Mauna Loa. And let's take um, a step back for our listeners. You know, you folks asked for a contested case hearing over the permits for the military to keep operating at Red Hill. Mm-hmm. Our concerns are are tied with the uh, proposed maintenance of the underground fuel storage tanks on Red Hill. There uh, was a contested case hearing in January where the Department of Health, you know, considered basically took evidence, took information from the Sierra Club, from its own Environmental Health Administration, from the Board of Water Supply, and from the Navy, and to determine uh, whether a permit should be issued to allow the Navy to continue maintaining, you know, 100-plus million gallons of fuel above above our sole source aquifer and whether or not there should be, you know, any conditions or protections incorporated into the permit. Um, this fuel leak now raises a question as to whether the Navy accurately included the fuel lines at issue within the scope of its permit, which we believe it should have. But we really need these documents to be able to, to make that case to determine to what extent the Department of Health should have considered, you know, uh, this associated infrastructure. And, you know, we did uh, put in our own open records request earlier this summer. Department of Health said that uh, they couldn't release it because the military was saying this was, you know, national security interest. Just recently, the AG's office said that they were reconsidering it and were trying to get some of that information released to us. But you're just trying to figure out if the leaks in Pearl Harbor are related to the Red Hill system. Uh, yes, there's certainly a significant indications that they are. But again, yes, we need to get the, those documents. And we, we've had similar responses from the Department of Health with regards to our open records request. But we, have, we haven't pointed to a legal justification for denying our request or failing to meet the, the statutory deadline. And there is this so, meeting coming up, uh, the advisory committee meeting on Thursday, and I think folks were expecting some fireworks because 
this permit has now been delayed for 30 days while the Department of Health tries to figure out if we need to reopen that hearing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and again, and especially, you know, given some of the emails that, you know, civil be reported on indicating that the Navy was more concerned about optics than, than full disclosure about what's going on at Red Hill, I think that just amplifies the concerns that folks already have about, you know, the almost existential threat that these 80-year-old underground fuel storage tanks may pose to all who residents. Do we have a handle on uh, when uh, the Department of Health will decide if they reopen up this hearing? So the contentious case hearing exceptions deadline was extended to November for one month. So at, at that point, probably sometime before that deadline, there'll be a motion to reopen. And then it's, you know, there'll be some discussion about the scope of the reopening. So exactly what will be examined or re-examined, you know, once this contested case gets uh, returned to the hearings officer. Yeah, so sometime in, in, in November. You talked about conditions possibly uh, attached to a permit. What would you like right. to see? So, you know, ultimately, we, we don't think it's safe to store well over 100 million gallons of petroleum fuel literally 100 feet above our sole source aquifer, which serves maybe about 400,000 residents on Oahu, not counting tourists. To the extent that a permit is issued, I think we'd want the strongest conditions possible, including conditions requiring the decommissioning of, of fuel tanks to the extent they can expedite their removal, relocation of the tanks. Okay. And then if you had any, uh, I don't know, communication with the Board of Water Supply? On this issue? So, yes, they are equally concerned about the inherent dangers that the fuel tanks pose to our water supply. And so they have, along with us, been advocating in the contested case for the removal of the tanks or minimally you know, a, a tank within the tank alternative where we're essentially, they'll able to essentially construct a slightly smaller tank within the existing tanks that can hold the fuel and then provide that additional level of containment, including with materials that are appropriate, such as stainless steel, that oh. won't rust like the current tanks are, are doing. Right. I mean, I, I know that uh, I think the Sierra Club has, has uh, you know, wanted the facility to be shut down and built somewhere else. You know, it's not so easy to do that. And in, I guess, in lieu of that, then just better safeguards to make sure that the fuel doesn't leach out. I just, you know, emphasize that, you know, this, I mean, this affects potentially, you know, our very way of life on, on this island and potentially like across, across the islands. You know, our, again, we have, you know, some of the purest water in the world and to risk losing that is going to impact, you know, everyone who drinks water, including tourists, including businesses, including our financial district, including also, I think, our, our national security. We basically have a whole bunch of eggs in one basket that is literally rusting away. And and the impacts that would have in our regional security, I think, would be also tremendous and also of great concern, you know, for folks who, who do believe that we need a strong military presence. That was Sierra Club Director Wayne Tanaka, who we talked to this morning. Uh, the Department of Health has 20 days to, res- to respond to its complaint. We do hope to hear more from the Navy about the status of the Red Hill investigations later today. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
In today's Backyard Quiz, we are remembering a legendary sportscaster whose voice was often heard on local television and radio. He got a start in broadcasting after being assigned to running the Palau Armed Forces radio station during World War II. After leaving military service, he gained national attention as sports director for a New York radio station that carried Yankee and Knicks games along with plenty of boxing. It was his voice that people remember hearing during one of the most famous fights in history when a young Cassius Clay, who would later change his name to Muhammad Ali, defeated Sonny Liston to become heavyweight champion of the world. Another highlight in his colorful career before his move to Honolulu in 1970 was covering the 68 Summer Olympics in Mexico City for Mutual Radio. If you know who we're talking about, be the first one to call. 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 and win our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Accessing justice, how do you make it easier? Well, you may have heard of TurboTax, but how about TurboCourt? It's a free online service aimed to make access to filing complaints simpler. Hawaii joins a handful of states who have rolled out TurboCourt to try and ease the process of seeking judicial relief. We talked to Angela Min, Chief Innovations Officer for the Judiciary, about the pilot, which started this summer on Oahu and Maui. So this program, what we want to do is be able to help individuals have easier access to the court. We talk about access to justice, and a lot of the times it's, you know, getting down to the physical courthouse could be a barrier. Individuals have to take a half day off on work, they have to get downtown, find parking. You know, these are all barriers that can hinder someone from um, filing their case. And so this program, which is an exclusive online program, we're allowing litigants to be able to resolve their disputes via the portal. Um, we're calling the ODR, Online Dispute Resolution Project. And individuals are able to file their forms online. If you think about how TurboTax is set up, similarly, this program will walk the individual through forms online, questions on the, online, and help them have the complaints and any necessary forms that they would need to be able to file online. They would be, even be able to file their filing fees online. And if eligible, they can actually request the court for their fee waiver through the portal as well. And so, you know, a lot of times we encounter individuals not knowing what forms to use, you know, how many forms are there. And so this portal will actually kind of self-guide them through 
and pull together what they need for their case. And so I think everything up until this point is already a big advantage for many individuals. And I mentioned earlier, you know, getting down to the courthouse is already really difficult. And so this portal, because it's online, an individual can access it any time of the day. So they can, you know, after they come home from work, they can start it. If they can't finish it at night, they can actually save it and go back and maybe finish it, you know, a day later, or maybe they're missing the defendant's address, the defendant's full name. They can, you know, have some time to look that up and be able to go back in um, and finish that form. And so I think that's another advantage for of a lot of individuals because sometimes going out of the courthouse, they feel you know, pressured to finish everything right there on the spot in front of the clerk. So, you know, it gives them that advantage to have some time to gather their thoughts, put down on the portal, you know, before they file the documents. What made the judiciary decide to try this? So a couple other states have there's been discussion about it. And, you know, we always want to find new programs that can make lives a little easier. And we hope that this portal will do that and also help with access to justice, like I mentioned. You know, especially with COVID, there's been times where the courthouse hours have been different and just being able to I think safety, you know, getting down there, feeling comfortable and going down to the courthouse. And so a program like this has really been able to assist in that manner. And we hope that individuals will be able to resolve their cases through programs like this. And they will save their time getting ready for court, going to the courthouse. And also, you know, we assume on the on the court side, too, it, it makes it a lot easier for court staff, too, to have a lot of cases resolved before having to attend the court hearing. Talk about the rollout. The first our pilot project, what we're calling it, the first circuit we tried is Oahu First Circuit, and we launched in July 1st. We had a very smooth rollout, and we just rolled out Second Circuit from Maui on September 1st. And we are looking to roll out Third and Fifth Circuit come January 2022. And then talk about the types of cases that you're trying out first. Uh, because of the pilot, we are kind of starting off small. We want to see how it's working. You know, we make, we need to make any changes, any modifications. So we're right now, it's open to small claims. So small claims generally, if you think about it, is any cases under $5,000. Popular, I guess, topics are, you know, someone suing another person for unpaid services, you know, maybe a debt that one person owes another person, maybe a claim for goods. And so those generally fall under the small claims. And... For here, right now during the pilot, it's only open to individuals with one other person currently. So person A versus person B. We are looking at our next enhancement to be adding multiple party filing because a lot of times there's multiple people involved in a, in a dispute. But for right now, it is A versus B, individuals who are not represented by attorneys. And it's set up that way also for the mediation component. So A versus B can negotiate via the portal. And, you know, if they can uh, come to an agreement, the portal will actually assist with, the, assist with filing the settlement agreement with the court. If they can't come to an agreement, you know, on their own, the third party mediator will step in and try to negotiate a settlement between the two parties as well. And if they can come to an agreement, settlement agreement will be generated and submitted to the court through the portal as well. So it's another stab at uh, some kind of resolution without going before Judge Judy. Yeah, you can think of it that way. We're giving them multiple options, really. It's, they have an opportunity to talk amongst themselves through the portal. And sometimes, you know, obviously A versus B, maybe the, that was actually, maybe the dispute was actually a while ago, so it's been difficult to communicate with the person. But now through the portal, they have an opportunity to talk 
and you know maybe or maybe they need a third party person to help too. So they're they're given at least two uh, opportunities to try to resolve the matter before having to go front the judge. Correct. What can you tell us about the feedback so far of, of the folks that may have found out about this uh, new way to file your complaints? So just from some of the stats that we've seen, you know, one of the stats that I'm I'm following is when people are actually filing the complaint and 41% of the individuals have been using it in off business hours. So I think that in itself has been a big active justice key to show that I mean, those individuals, if they had to, if they didn't have this program, they would otherwise have to make a separate arrangement. So I think that that part of the feedback has been very promising. And I think the fact that individuals can know what forms to use has been very successful versus going to the courthouse and figure out they missed the form and having to fill it on the spot, like I mentioned earlier. Um, so far, um, you know, the courthouse, the staff has also let us know that it's been a pretty smooth rollout for Second Circuit after after modeling First Circuit. So we hope Third and Fifth Circuit rollout will also be smooth. There are a couple of, you know, enhancements, and, you know, we do want to add to the to the portal to make it even more user-friendly. So, you know, we want to be able to add multi-party filing and some other kind of additions on there that hopefully will just make it a little user-friendly for our, our users. And then is there anything we can learn from the other states that have already adopted the system? Well, I think Hawaii, you know, every state is a little different. I know California has been operating theirs in L.A. County, uh, a lot bigger counties, you know, than, than us. They have actually opened it up to, I think, many different areas of law. So we are looking at, you know, kind of which areas that they have chosen and hopefully our maybe our, our future enhancement after this pilot project could be one of the areas that they have seen, you know, great use from and really popular amongst the community. And that might be another area that we can add to our portal. That was Angela Min, Chief Innovations Officer for the Hawaii Judiciary, talking about a new program to expand access to our justice system. Support for HPR comes from Kahala Market by Foodland, offering new food experiences and locally sourced and Hawaii-made products, providing everyday grocery needs and grab-and-go cuisine. KahalaMKT.com. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy lunch and Sunday brunch at the open-air Homa Cafe, featuring a menu of island-style fare and refreshments. Details at honolulumuseum.org. Honolulu Civil Beats scoop about House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke's interest in higher office has tongues wagging, particularly since it could signal a big shift in power in the House. 
Reporter Kevin Dayton joins us for this follow-up. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Nice to talk to you again, Catherine. Yes. And so, uh, Sylvia Luke, I mean, this was really kind of a surprise because, you know, not too long ago, people were saying, well, House Speaker Scott Psyche might jump into the LG's race. Exactly right. And he decided not to do that, of course. Um, but uh, as you pointed out on Sunday, uh, Representative Luke confirmed for Civil Beat Editor's editor, uh, Chad Blair, that she will be running for lieutenant governor. And that adds a, some excitement to the race. Um, Luke has a pretty sizable pile of money to use for her campaign. And she has lots of friends to help her, which is what's got people sort of interested in the situation that she'll be leaving behind when she leaves the House. Well, you know, I remember when both she and Scott were newbies and uh, Calvin Say, you know, was trying to get them, uh, uh, you know, more exposure and, uh, you know, moving them up in the ranks. So who, who will they help give a leg well, up? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because they've been such a tight team. Um, she leaves uh, uh, what some people have called a vacuum behind her if she if she does follow through with this and run for lieutenant governor. You know, they've been so close and her role has, as finance chair has been so important in sort of stabilizing the House that people are wondering whether that might weaken the current House leadership and create an opening for someone else to step in or, or take over or something like that. It's a long way away, but still, it, it's interesting to speculate on because she has been so very important. And you reached out to a number of folks who were not in a position of power, uh, you know, when uh, they had the transition under Calvin Say. Correct. Um, you know, there, there's there's folks uh, who have been acting as dissidents, such as uh, Kauai Representative Jimmy Tokioka. Um, he has been opposing the current leadership for some time. He's tried to organize it in the past to see if he couldn't, uh, you know, round up the necessary 26 votes to take over his either a speaker himself or, or at least to change the leadership. Um, he was never able to do that. And the House has looked super stable for a number of years now, in, in large part because of that tight alliance with uh, between Sylvia Luke and the House Speaker Scott Psyche. The, the mechanics of that are kind of interesting. Um, Representative Luke, as finance chair, controls the flow of money uh, through the House, state, state funding. So she is able to assist uh, various lesser-known members or freshman members of the House and so on to get money for pet projects that they want to pursue in their districts. That, as you might imagine, makes friends with people. Um, you know, a young legislator coming into the House uh, who's able to get money for something to take it back home to his district, that helps him to get reelected, him or her. And, and also, you know, that's the kind of thing that people remember, the political favors that are done for people. She's done a lot of that. And so she is a popular person internally with the leadership team that is in charge now. You know, and uh, it you know does raise some questions like you know what happens to uh, Del Albalati, uh, who's also a psyche ally. Of course, of course. I mean, the, the, I don't mean to present it as if uh, Scott Psyche is by himself because he's not. He's got a leadership team, but she has been a super important part of that. Meaning Sylvia Luke, Della Albalati. Um, she's a majority Democratic majority leader right now. Um, there is um, uh, folks such as. Um, Johansson, who is, um, you know, has, has obviously been well liked by the, the leadership. So there are other people who could step up and fill different roles there. Uh, Ty Cullen, for example, is the vice chair of the, of the House Finance Committee. Some people sort of see him as the heir apparent to step into the role that, that Sylvia Luke is filling right now. But there's some instability, too. And of course, reapportionment is going on right now, and that's made some people unhappy. 
So that makes things look a little bit shakier. Yeah, so, I mean, some folks might say, well, this is insider baseball, but, you know, we're talking about power, and, uh, you know, what you can do is one of the chairs of the money committees, uh, that goes a long way. Absolutely. And, you know, some people would say that the House hasn't been progressive enough, or, or others, of course, Republican side would say that they've been too much of free spenders. Um, so the, who ends up in charge? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a lot to say about the way the state is run in the years ahead. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. we cover many topics and issues that strike a chord in our listeners or remind them of a good story. Our talkback line is how they communicate those thoughts to us. Here's a voicemail that one listener left us after we discussed a nursing shortage in Hawaii. Hi, this is Lane, and I'd like to comment on nursing programs that you folks are talking about, not enough nurses in Hawaii. About 20 years ago, I was in a nursing program at TCC, and they accepted 60 students into the program. However, when it's time to graduate, less than less than half graduate from the program. And I really feel it's many reasons why this is happening. And some of it is personality among the staffing or instructors that's teaching. And it's been going on for many, many years. I am in the medical field. Never reached being a licensed practical nurse because of the political things that happen in these schools. So I've spoken about it many times to hire up, you know, because this need goes way back. But, you know, in the past, I've heard histories in the past that they actually trained the nurses in the hospitals, and I think they should bring that back. There was never schools before. You know, everybody got trained within the facility, but there's a wide range of things that they can do to bring up local people in being a nurse to provide help in Hawaii. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And here's an email that we received from Dennis Yamamoto uh, about a new book out covering the public corruption case involving the Honolulu Police Department and the city prosecutor's office, specifically uh, Chief Louis K. Aloha and his wife, Catherine. Thank you for providing a deep dive into local topics as well as a light touch on more leisure aspects of living in Hawaii. Combined with your journalistic instincts, you have a great depth as to the pulse of the public. This provides a meaningful and entertaining venue. You ask the questions the listener might be shouting to the radio. There are so many loose ends with the Kealoha case, so many unanswered questions. It seems there are other culpable people not yet prosecuted for the Kealohas to behave with impunity for so long. Well, something is dysfunctional. The larger issue is the public distrust of official government agencies with the corruption of the very people that's supposed to protect us, that this skepticism trickles down to disrespect to any public worker and or anyone in uniform. Another listener left this voicemail about electric car sales in service on the neighbor islands. Barbara Cameron calling from Waimea on the big island. I had just gone to Kona and happened to be sitting with 
a Toyota dealer while having checkups done on my car, and we discussed Tesla, and he told me that their program is in place now that no one but their mechanics can work on a Tesla if there's a problem. And he had a customer bring his Tesla into the Toyota dealer's shop in Kona, and the problem was a bad battery. They had to wait three months for the Tesla technician to actually secure a battery and also come over from Oahu to change the battery. So I think these things should be made known when we're talking about recommending products. A little bit more research wouldn't be a bad idea. Just a little more information would have been great because it was very interesting. Thank you. Aloha. Do you have a comment or a story about something we discussed on our show? Send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Did you know this happens to be roller skating month? And before October gets away from us, we thought we would share what we discovered about the sport in the islands. Call it a resurgence or revival or just a new discovery. Getting on four wheels again has been a diversion for some, an obsession for others. Remember this quirky song that captured a certain something about childhood skating days? At New York City's JFK Airport, skaters have enjoyed a pop-up rink at the TWA Hotel. The Rollerama opened up back in June, and it's to close at the end of this month. We got wind of a group of 20-somethings from Oahu who this summer headed to the Big Apple with roller skates in tow. Have skates, will travel. We caught up with Angela Huber and Rachel Sia in Kaimuki. They admit they've dropped serious money on this new habit, and their addiction doesn't seem to show signs of waning. It's been a way to get into music of all kinds and to dance their COVID cares away. And so how long have you folks been skating? Uh, not that long. It's been like seven months. Yeah, yeah seven months. And what got you into it? Uh, it was during COVID and I guess watching all the social media and I was working a bunch. I really wanted to move around. I definitely like Angela, I think that seeing all the videos of people skating online, it was really inspiring and seemed really liberating and it was exactly what I think we both needed in a time of a little bit more restriction. Rachel and Angela got their hipster roller time in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, and Rachel took it farther to Europe. I went from New York to um, Germany, Berlin, actually, where it actually has one of the biggest skate communities I've ever seen, ever. Uh, it was really special, actually. A large um, part of the community skates in this actually old, abandoned airport. 
tarmac where there are roller skaters on quads, on the inline, bicycles, skateboarders, everyone there kind of skating together and there's music so it's really special. Melissa Garvey of Roller Skate Oahu knows a thing or two about the skating scene. She's from Jersey and spent many a day wheeling through Manhattan. Garvey never outgrew the sport. We caught up with her at a pop-up market in Kailua. She knew she was on to something when she sold out her inventory of skates a year ago. Hawaii used to have five skating rinks attracting inline speed and roller derby skaters. Melissa dreams of opening up a shop and has the pulse on skating across the aisles. Now, um, so skatinghigh.com on Maui is a woman who um, loves roller skating. She has her own business and she kind of added the skating on selling roller skates on her website. So um, those you have to call her, speak to her, get your size and get them drop shipped to you. So it's, uh, you have to measure your feet. You can't try them on. Um, but it's still a good service on Maui. Big Island has a shop now. They just opened up, so that's brilliant. I'm hoping to get a shop soon. Anything on Kauai? Um, there's a Kau Skate Club on Kauai, um, and they're doing well. They've got a set plot of land, and they're funding, raising funds to build a, a, it sounds like an amazing plan, to build a purpose-built building. Um, so you can support them and buy their t-shirts and hats and help them raise funds, Kau Skate Club. And they're the ones I'm aware of. There's new things popping up all the time. There's a great Facebook group called Hawaii Roller Skating. It's over a thousand members now, all over the islands, mostly Oahu, but other islands too. There's also Hawaii Master Skaters on Facebook, on Big Island, again, other islands as well. But that Hawaii Roller Skating Facebook group, two women just started it back in September and it's blown up. Everybody messages on there. I'm gonna go here, who wants to meet me? And people just meet up and skate in, in parks. Um, they're all very respectful of each other. We've had a lot of rollouts, we're very aware of COVID, so we always mask up and socially distance. It's very family friendly. A lot of people bring their kids and it's just a fun place to meet up and skate and you get to see other people doing tricks and you can learn from them. Um, it's a very fun social thing to do. Mimi Hajek came over for this pop-up event from the Big Island where the sport is drawing interest from the younger set. I have about 40 regular kids that comes to our classes every week. And we have, like on the vacation time or like when school's off, I have about 70 kids now. It's really so, taken off. Yeah, it, it has been taking off. So pretty good, you know, kids skating nowadays. And then, you know, uh, coming here, uh, I mean, it's a pop-up, but, you know, a, yeah. kind of a decent selection and a lot of people are checking them out. Yeah, it's great because the um, biggest problem that we have is all the skates are it fits differently and you never know until you try them on and until this came along like we had to order online and try them on and then if it doesn't work out you either have to deal with it or ship it back and that process takes like one month and stuff so this is great and so it just sounds like uh, it's catching on on the different islands and yes. People are just getting back into it or just discovering it for the first time. Right, right. So um, I think our generation grew up on the Lola Skate Link and now they have a kid and they want to do that together. And that's kicking up with uh, little kids. Like um, most of my um, kids that come to learn to Lola Skate programs are about 8 to 10 years old. Some starts younger, but yeah, that's mostly their age. 
And Lemomi Kekina is somewhat of a speed demon. She can clock 22 miles an hour on quads, which has won her the admiration of fellow skaters. She tells us while looking for something to get her through COVID and the shutdown, she stumbled across roller skating again, fell in love again, channeling her inner child at 50-something. And so I immediately bought another pair of skates and continued skating um, to the point where I did a 100-mile challenge in 10 days. Um, and now for the month of October, I'm trying to skate five miles a day every day for the month of October. Um, I can't explain what the addiction is or how we got addicted. Um, but once you get into your groove, it's just, it's unexplainable in that once these skates are on my feet, I feel like I'm 10 years old again, even though I'm 52 and feel like I'm old as heck. Um, but it gives me great joy when, when the kids come up to me and go, Oh, auntie, you're like the auntie to keep up with, man. You're so fast. But I'm just trying to get in shape. I'm just trying to have fun. And every time I put them on, my face just wants to break into a big old smile. And, and, and I can't help it. I feel like I'm 10 years old again at 52. It's incredible. So it's just pure joy. It's just pure joy, pure exhilaration. Even though it feels like we're not good and we're kind of junk at it and our balance is junk, just just the sheer joy of having them on our feet and feeling the, that nostalgic youngness again is just exhilarating, thrilling, exciting. Forget about COVID. <laughs> what COVID? I'm just gonna skate the streets, man. <laughs> And there you have it, riding the roller skating wave. Watch out, skater boys, skater girls, and aunties are coming through. Okay, and in today's Backyard Quiz, a name well-known to local sports buffs. His voice was heard on broadcasts of the famous uh, Ali Liston fight, New York Yankee pre- and post-game shows, and innumerable sports broadcasts in the New York City area. After a move to Philadelphia in the 60s, he began broadcasting 76ers and Big Five basketball games, beginning each broadcast with the phrase, Welcome to Panicsville, USA. He started working in Honolulu Television in the early 1970s and stayed on the air for more than 20 years. During his tenure as sports director of KHON Television, he guided many up-and-coming sportscasters, including Ron Mizutani and Bob Hogue. His co-anchor Joe Moore affectionately referred to him after a character he played on a Hawaii Five-O guest appearance. The general, as you may remember, was Les Kiter. And congratulations to Jamie Iwasaki from the Big Island. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the Master of HR Management program is November 4th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Of a next fresh air, Katie Couric. After anchoring NBC's Today Show for 15 years, 
First with Brian Gumbel, then Matt Lauer, she moved to CBS, where she was the first woman to be the solo anchor of a network evening news show. She's written a new memoir. I hope you'll join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. One of the silver linings of the COVID-19 pandemic, the stories of people who turn lockdowns and restrictions into opportunities. One of those stories belongs to Maui native Calvin Kanha, better known within Hawaii's music industry as Drumwise. The percussionist and producer has worked and traveled with artists Paula Fuga, uh, Kimie, and many others since 2004. And this year, he released his debut album, Reflection Rhythm. Recorded entirely during the pandemic, it celebrates his love of reggae and features several international and local artists like Peter Morgan or F- and Fiji on vocals. The Conversations Russell Subiano got a chance to speak to Kanha and about his music background and what it was like recording an album while navigating social distancing. How did you get your start in music? Did you come from a musical family? Did you kind of catch the music bug while growing up or going to school? I didn't come from a musical family. Being a younger brother, seeing my older sister in like intermediate school band, I kind of naturally wanted to do what she was doing. And when I got to her grade and her age, I tried out for the same band, concert band as an intermediate concert band. And I ended up making the band and naturally wanted to play percussion like her. So that's where it started. I like gravitated to the drum set specifically in band. My teacher kind of like sensed that and he would like let us come in during recess and stuff and like play around in the drum set. And so that's where I started throughout high school. I did jazz band and then just started playing with my friends in like small bands. I started out playing rock and like metal (laughs) and like Metallica, (laughs) Slipknot, all of that stuff, which is totally different from what I'm playing now. Back then I was like, didn't want to do reggae at all. And then my mom had a co-worker's son who was in this reggae band and they were looking for a drummer. So I just went over to his house one day and kind of jammed around and played and kind of like liked it. So I'm just like the groove just caught me. And ever since then was just reggae all the way. Is it the vibe of the culture? Is it the, the kind of passion you can put into reggae that attracts you there, that keeps you there? Yeah, I think what caught me was the groove, you know, that because reggae is... It's all about drums and bass up front. Naturally, as a drummer, I'm like tuning into those to those things. And then just playing groove more so than chops and stuff like that. I was never like a chop player. I was more so, I was just super content just sitting in the pocket and grooving all day. Like I could just do that. I don't care to be like flashy or anything like that. Along with that, the culture too. I went to Jamaica for a a month, I think, month and a half Mm -hmm. during Christmas and New Year's 2011 with a friend and kind of just immersed ourselves in the culture, reggae, dance hall. We stayed in the country and yeah, we just soaked ourselves in the culture and fell in love with it. It's like island life, you know, Jamaica's an island, so it's relatable to Hawaii and there's a lot of similarities. I connected with it and kind of like vice versa. So did you have any formal training at all? I did take like one drum lesson outside of concert band, took like one ukulele lesson, but most of it is just ear, just learning. I was just constantly listening. I think it's more of just train, being training my ear all these years that kind of helped me tune, like fine tune my ear and like critical, like critical listening and stuff like that. Yeah. It sounds like you just have this innate talent for music in general. That's pretty cool. Now, this is your debut album. It's called Correct. Reflection Rhythm. Mm-hmm. You recorded and produced it entirely, entirely during the COVID pandemic. 
what kind of challenges did social distancing and other restrictions did you have to overcome? Just like for me, the, the way that I would ideally work is if I get in a room with somebody and work through things, communicate ideas. But since this whole pandemic, it's like everybody's at home. We weren't going, going over to each other's houses or meeting up in a studio. It was just all done remote. So that was challenging, not being able to just bounce ideas with somebody in real time, you know, and vibing with them, seeing seeing their head bobbing or, you know, seeing their facial expressions. It was just sending files back and forth, sending ideas back and forth, you know, Zoom meetings and like FaceTime calls and huge amounts of texts and emails and stuff like that. Yeah, that was not ideal, but I was like, well, what else am I doing? So just, you know, try to make it work, you know. Did some of your feelings about the pandemic, maybe frustration, anger, anxiety, did any of those feelings find their way into any of your songs? I feel like for my production, like the beat that I made, it for sure did. It's yeah. more of the chord progression is more of an emotional one. It can kind of like take you to a place of like deep reflection, no pun intended, which is also why that kind of was like the name of the rhythm. But a lot of the artists that I had on it, I feel like, the state of the world at the time had a huge part to do with the messages that they were trying to talk about and, and share and their personal experience. And some of them, like Jamiri's one is called Faith, about somebody else, you know, like so like fed up that he's willing to take his life, own life, you know. I know better days must come. That's why me down, sit down, don't worry now. Smile, cause your blessings soon come. Yeah, it's some pretty, some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. And I definitely feel like the artists have showed out in their music and the, the lyrics that they wrote about the time that we're in. Innovisions song, Too Much, is another one that's like, what are we coming to? Like, we can't hug each other, you know, six feet apart. And it definitely made its way into the album. Too much drugs and guns, politician, rap and Babylon limiting love, six feet apart and no Um, on my side, with the acoustic guitar, it's real soft and real melodic. I think brings up a lot of emotions. Just hearing the chords, like a lot of the artists told me, as like I sent them the song, and they're like, as soon as I heard the chords and the progression, they you know it immediately sparked some sort of emotion, and it just it all came out, you know. So it for sure made its way into the album. I got that impression as I was listening to Faith. It sounded like a song, maybe even an anthem for the times to, to mm -hmm. you know, even all the bad things that are happening to continue to stay faithful that, you know, there's that something good is coming down the road. So I definitely got yeah. that. Vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Like just got to keep your head up, you know, and just keep, keep going. We'll get through this, but you just got to don't give up, you know. I know that you recorded all the instruments in your home studio in Kaimuki, except yep. for the drums which I read were recorded in a studio. What was the reason mm -hmm. for recording drums separately or, or in a different um, location? Basically, like, I, it's a, my home studio. So it's like, a, it's literally a bedroom studio that I kind of built up during the first quarter of pandemic. So I kind of like put all my resources into building up my studio. Unfortunately, 
we live above my landlord. Okay. So it's like not really considerate to be slamming on drums, you know. And I have a bunch of friends that own studios and I really love their drum sound. So while I was in there for another session, I was like, hey, I got this this track that I'm working on. Might as well record drums since we're there. So I recorded it at Blue Planet Studio. I wish I could record drums at home or else I would, but yeah. <laughs> my landlord would hate me. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. In your track, Till Shiloh Come, it's an all-instrumental mm-hmm. track with a real jazzy saxophone. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty unusual for a reggae album. What's the story behind including an instrumental song on the album? Usually these Jamaican juggler albums have one song that's instrumental. Okay. So that's just just the rhythm, no no lyrics. Yeah. So I, I knew I wanted to do that, but my manager Anuatu and I was like, yo, it'd be it would be sick to get our brother Sheldon, who is J Bug saxophone player, to do like a instrumental, but just add sax on it, you know, just yeah. kind of switch it up a little bit. And I sent him the rhythm and he was like, yeah, I'm down. And he ended up bringing his bro, Lorenzo West, to do bass leads mm-hmm. on it too, which I never had two basses playing on a track at the same time. So that was pretty cool to have saxophone and a bass lead on that track. So I'm like super stoked the way that track turned out. It's very unique. Yeah. And, and you mentioned before about Jamaican juggling. Your album celebrates the traditional Jamaican juggling culture. Can you Mm -hmm. share more about Jamaican juggling culture with our audience? Yes, Jamaican juggling is, it's basically one song and one beat or rhythm as they call it. And they get all different artists to voice on the same rhythm. And the DJs usually will have one song off the rhythm on one turntable. And, you know, we'll be playing that artist song and then they would juggle back to the next turntable, which has the next artist, but on the same rhythm. So if you don't know the culture, it seems like it's just one song over and over and over again, which is true for the music. But the lyrics and the artists that are on the, the rhythm is constantly changing. So that's kind of what the juggling back and forth is. And Jamaican culture is really competitive. So it's like who can have the best version on that same rhythm? So that's kind of like where that juggling culture comes from. And I wanted, I was always a fan of that. And I knew I always wanted to do some sort of juggler or rhythm album. So why not be my first one? Is there a story behind the name Drumwise? Yeah, there is. It's a funny, pretty funny story. It came about as a joke in Jamaican or like reggae. When you want the drum and bass to play, it's usually called out dubwise or dub, which is just drum, drum and bass will play. So I was at the sound check in Australia with Boog and musical director was yelling out, you know, dubwise, whatever. Then he wanted just me to play. So he yelled out drum wise. So just, you know, just me. And then he ended up calling out, you know, guitar wise or sax wise or whatever. But that drum wise, I kind of heard it and I was like, ooh, that's kind of dope. And it kind of caught my ear. So I just ran with it. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. All right, bro. All right. That was HPR's Russell Sabiano talking with Maui born musician Calvin Conha, better known as Drumwise. His debut album, Reflection Rhythm, is available now.
we are all pow now. Tomorrow, we hope to hear from the military about the situation at Red Hill. What do you think? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.